kind of titled this before we get started, uh, Beware What You Believe, so be thinking about that. And again, through Colossians, and just because I'm intrigued with the whole process of thinking, uh, there'll be a lot of that again tonight. What, where do we come to these conclusions? Uh, God warns us over and over. There's much warning in this chapter, so let's look for that as we read through it. Uh, but verse 1, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, if this sounds familiar, I have already taught on it, and Aubrey brought this up this morning. Always nice confirmation. Um, and that's not the only spot that we're going to tonight that we went to this morning. <laughs> that's always comforting to know when you chose ahead of time. But obviously Paul has not been there. We've talked about that already. And this is the conflict that he had in his heart for them. Two, that their hearts may be encouraged as opposed to being discouraged. Discouragement is an unnecessary evil that we allow ourselves to fall into. Um, but that their hearts might be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom, speaking of Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words, lest anyone deceive you, hence beware what you believe, because we are prone to deception, and as um, our precious pastor Richard constantly reminds us that the, the danger of deception is that you don't know that you're being deceived or else you wouldn't be deceived. By nature, you must be deceived if you're getting there, so you don't even know it. So how do we deal with that? We'll be talking about this. With persuasive words, big words, for though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And again, we pose that. How did you receive the Lord Jesus Christ? Did you earn it? Did you meet a standard that enabled him to come to you? Or was it just because he chose to do something because he's a gracious God? And that he found you and that he made a way. We didn't do anything to deserve it, which therefore, that's how we came to him, undeserving. And that's important because as you grow, my, my own philosophy on this Take it to the scriptures. I'm warning you about philosophy already. <laughs> um, if you're walking with God, he's doing everything, right? So all of a sudden, you're doing what you think is best. Next thing you know, he shows you that's wrong, and he's, and he's talking to you. He's, he's meeting with you. He's speaking to you. And if we grieve him, if we get stuck, if there's something we're not willing to let go of, and sometimes we end up being hardened and we can't hear him anymore. So what happens when all of a sudden you're willing, not willing to repent? You, you can't deny because you know it's true. So you fall into works. You, you, uh, well, I know I'm supposed to pray. Well, I know I'm supposed to read. Well, I know I'm supposed to go to church and it's not led of the spirit anymore because you grieved him already. So religion will come to us if we don't allow that relationship to flourish. It's, it's, it's a natural effect. It's better than going back into the world uh, and, and most of us, at least beginning when we first stumble, we know better. So we do the best that we can because we know that we're supposed to do something. 
and, and, and trying harder isn't it. We'll talk about that later. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, we received him by grace. Grace by definition means you can't earn it. It's something that you don't deserve. So that's how we walk with him, just because we know he's good and he wants to. And that's how we're to walk in him, seven, rooted. And again, that's a, that is um, something that happens to you. If you study the Greek, it's not something you do. You don't make yourself rooted. It's something that happened to you and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught. So it's important to remember what you've been taught by God, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And here's the warning, verse 8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him... Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. And again, we can spend time, which we will, on philosophies and psychology and what the world brings as solutions and answers to the soul and the issues that we have. And but I think that it goes right in after this into legalism and some other things, and I think they're all tied together because the, the, it is beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world. So everybody that's born is given a, a mind, a soul, and they can think and figure things out. And if you can sit there and figure it out on your own, it's probably not God. Everything... What is Jesus like? Well, we can see things, but you can't figure them out. He had to come and tell you, what's my, why did God put me here? You can think of a good reason, but if he doesn't tell you why he put you here, you're just guessing, and it's not necessarily the Lord. What is, how, how were things created? You can try to come to a conclusion using science, but if God doesn't tell you, you're probably going to be wrong. And all of these things, whether it's works or philosophies, if, if you sit there and have an opinion on something and you go back to why you have that opinion, if it's not rooted and you were taught that and it's not in the Word of God, then you should re review why you believe what you believe. Where did it come from? And I just took some notes from the uh, world-renowned Wikipedia. <laughs> Always a good go-to, right? Uh, the definition of psychology. Um, it is the scientific study of mind and behavior. Historian, and again, because if you remember chapter one, this is kind of relevant. Historians note that Greek philosophers, including Thales, Plato, and Aristotle, addressed the workings of the mind. As early as the fourth century BC, the Greek physician Hippocrates theorized that mental disorders had physical rather than supernatural causes. In 387 BC, Plato suggested that the brain is where the mental process takes place. And in 335 BC, Aristotle suggested that that was actually from the heart. So here are people that are trying to come to a conclusion and uh, they used to think that it was supernatural. If all of a sudden something happens to you and you go crazy and you decide that you wanna kill a bunch of kids. Well, maybe it was a supernatural event. Then they say, no, his brain's out of order. And again, we were talking about that on the way back. How come nobody loses their mind and goes and gives away all their stuff and helps the poor? When they, I wouldn't have normally done that, but I'm, no, it always seems to be evil. And, and 
Aristotle suggested it's a heart issue. And we know that sometimes heart issues can affect you physically, whether it's sexual desires or even, even fear, right? If you have fear, you can end up with a hole in your stomach, an actual physical hole from something that you're thinking about in your heart and dwelling on that's not normal. So heart and mental issues, if dwelled upon in an ungodly matter, can actually cause physical changes in your body. So we are to be aware of that. So philosophy, so that was psychology. Philosophy has four main branches, epistemology, metaphysics, logic, and ethics. Does anybody in here ever heard of or know what epistemology is? Yeah, it's a really cool word to say. <laughs> I don't know, I just like saying it. it. makes you sound studious. Epistemology is the philosophical study of the nature, origin, and limits of human knowledge and the theory of knowledge. It's basically the study of knowledge. So a lot of times I've listened to people that were more into evangelical things and philosophers and, and theologians, and I hear this word all the time. I never really knew what it meant. It's basically the study of knowledge. We study knowledge. God is knowledge, right? And we want to know more. So our view should be the correct study of the knowledge. And in Paul's time, there were, as you'll probably sound familiar, there was two basic or two, two, two of the most prevalent uh, philosophies that were out there were Stoics and Epicureans, right? The Stoics and Epicureans came to Paul on Mars Hill, and we even talked about that location earlier. It was right outside of here. And uh, the Epicureans, and, and if you listen to them, it's, you'll also notice it's not changed that much. It's very prevalent today. And I can also find oftentimes even in my life in the body of Christ, you can see this creeping in, in a godly way, of course, because we try to fix everything because we know better. But an Epicurean pursued, um, well, let me go to Stoics. Stoicism is the endurance of pain or hardship without the display of feelings and without complaint. A school taught that virtue was the highest good, is based on knowledge, the wise live in harmony with the divine reason, also identified with fate and providence, that governs nature and are indifferent to the changes of fortune and to pleasure and pain. So they just sit there and they go through and they're kind of emotionless, kind of like God's in control and whatever happens to me, and they just try to go through the motions. And sometimes we can get stoic, and we probably think of somebody that's stoic as like emotionless. They just sit there and always a very stoic person. He's withdrawn or held back, and they try not to let things affect them and to a point that can be good but also to a point it's not real and uh and it's not godly and sometimes i think that when we are trying to figure if it's god's will you know it's basically what god has to do it if he doesn't do it then it wasn't his will and he's asking you to go but he didn't make me go he didn't sell my house for me and sometimes that the deeper part of that philosophy can creep into our christian walk and the epicureans are the opposite side of that they, they pursued pleasure as the chief purpose in life and valued most of all the pleasure of a peaceful life, free from pain, disturbing passions, and superstitious fears, including the fear of death. They did not deny the existence of gods, but they believed that they, the gods, had nothing to do with man. And their motto, which you've heard, is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So it doesn't matter what we happen here, it, things are going to go on. And sometimes... I think we live haplessly as Christians also. And uh, we can just, you know, if it doesn't feel right, then it must not be God. And a lot of times I don't call it 
that, but that's how I live by nature. And, and sometimes these philosophies are just in our culture and they catch up with you. And obviously there's more prevalent issues right now. Rob touched on that this morning too, gender, gender. What it, the philosophy of what does it mean to be a man or a woman. And it's, there's this push, evil, to come through it. The Bible simply explains it. It's scriptural. It's very clear. Anything other than that is, is, a, is a lie. And it's actually, I believe, a lie from the pit of hell. There are people that are trying to have an agenda and change something. Gender's not confusing. Why do they want to make it confusing? Well, first of all, there's an enemy. So whatever reason different people might give you for why they believe that or want that to be true, they're ultimately going against God and they're fighting scripture. As he, Rob mentioned this morning, right? Adam, the first man, Eve was actually inside of him. Everything that came out of him went into Eve. And God told Adam that you don't have a, 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 a helper suitable for you, right? So what was he there for? Why did God create man in the first place? If you don't get that right, then you're not going to understand why there's got to be a man and a woman. So he took something out of Adam that was in Eve, and the two of them together made up the original Adam, and Adam was made in the image of God. So when you put Adam and Eve together, you get the original intent of what man was supposed to be. Anything other than that is an abomination. It's not the original thing. So if you get gender mixed up, then you get everything else mixed up. God had an intent. Women have a purpose. Men have a purpose. They're different on purpose. God didn't, he wasn't confused and he didn't make a mistake. So when you sit there and you want to tell God that he was wrong, which is basically what they're doing, and I want to choose what I do with my life and I want to figure out what right and wrong is, right? Isn't that the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? The knowledge, here we are talking about knowledge and rightfully understanding epistemology. I might say that a couple more times because it's fun. <laughs> what, what, the knowledge of good and evil. So what is good and what is evil? Well, now I can figure it out. I'm going to decide gender because I don't need God to tell me anything, which comes right down to marriage. Marriage has a scriptural purpose. And a lot of times in the church, we might tend to believe that a man and a man getting married is an abomination, but we don't sit there and understand that the intent isn't to have a man and a woman together. The intent is to represent Christ. And you needed a man and a woman to do that, but if they're not saved, they're not doing it either. If they're living together and they're not married, they're not doing it either. Just having a man and a woman isn't enough, and just having them married isn't enough. They need to represent Christ in the church, which always... Now that I'm saved, we were unsaved, Lisa and I, when we got married, and we did it in a church just because I knew it was right, but I wasn't doing it for the right reason. I didn't want to honor and represent God and act like Jesus in, in that way, which surprises me that if you're not saved, then why go to a church? It's almost a confession that you realize that it's supposed to be something religious, and we're not doing that. It's a confession. There's a purpose for this, and it's scriptural, and it's godly, and I don't know what it is, but I'm going to go through with it anyways. To why then I can understand, well, why we hear somebody that's not saved, why, why bother getting married in a church? And I'm like, yeah, why bother getting in a married church? You're not doing it for the right reason. Just getting married to somebody that's of the opposite sex in a church doesn't all of a sudden make it right. 
you're not, you're not right with God. <clears throat> Marriage has a purpose and an intent, and it's in the Bible and it's scriptural. Child or fetus in the womb. Again, not confusing. When it's not convenient truth, then you can change the truth. But it doesn't mean that it's not the truth. So where are you going with that? So <clears throat> sometimes philosophies come out and they're harmful. Critical race theory. Again, I don't know. We've talked about a lot of stuff. Um, I was ignorant. I wasn't taught on this stuff, or I was. I didn't pay attention. I wasn't a very good student in high school because I was distracted. <laughs> but um, there's a, a pastor. He's been teaching on this since the middle 90s, 20 years. And this came out of... Germany, of all places, where they do need the Lord. <laughs> We're always on our way there. Uh, in Frankfurt, there was this school, and uh, it, it's called critical thinking, and it's socialism, basically. And anything that has critical in front of it, by nature, by definition, has a socialist agenda. And the whole point there, whether people know it or realize it not, um, is not good. It's 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 pushing all of these things that we're talking about to break down the family and um, anything that can divide and separate to cause a purpose, <clears throat> which is my next topic here is heresy. So when you have people teaching doctrines and philosophies that are, are wrong, we would call that heresy. Heresy just means it's not correct. It's, it's bad epistemology through theology, and it's an act of taking capture or storming a city. That's what the word by definition means. And it's, it's usually just when dissensions arising from diversity of opinions and aims. So not agreeing with somebody on a specific thing, there's liberty as long as it's not something that's an essential doctrine. But when it comes to a point of it's taught in order to divide or to split people off or to harm the body of Christ, that's, that's heresy. And uh, so, first of all, we have things outside of the church that come that are not good, the philosophies. And in Paul's time, there were many philosophers that gathered, and everybody knew all the popular philosophies of the world, and they were all from other gods and religions. And then there's the things in the church that divide heresy. So you have things attacking from outside, and you have things attacking from the inside. And the things that all of these have in common are their lies, and, they, and they're, they're human, human origina originated. They're not from God. That's the, that's the whole thing. If it's, if it's, if it's vain or empty, uh, and it's from the tradition of men or the basic principles of the world, then it's not according to Christ. We just want to know the things that are according to Christ. And uh, so you can have people coming out saying, evolution says that God didn't make everything. Then you can have people coming into the church and saying, yeah, he did, but he ended on the Sabbath, and we're supposed to worship on the Sabbath. So now all of a sudden, the people from outside aren't using Scripture to make their claim, and then the next part is people in the church misrepresenting God by, by not correctly dividing the doctrine. And, uh, and you could do long studies on both, but it's the same effect, it's the same heart, and the answer is the same. It's just know God, follow him, and go back to how you were saved. How did you receive Christ? That's how you're to walk in him. And again, last time I 
went through a, a list of some doctrines, Reformed theology, teachings on the rapture, spiritual gifts, baptism, uh, the authority and authenticity of the Bible, uh, relativism, which means that there's no absolute truths. You wouldn't think that would be something from within the church, but at the pastor's conference, one of the things uh, one of the pastors quoted was the percentage of pastors in the pulpits in our country that don't believe the Bible is the word of God. Hard to believe. Well, I guess not if you're out in the world talking to people. I don't know where they go to church, but it's evident that they don't believe the Bible is the word of God. Um, and then there's things that are essential and things that aren't essential. And these are things that can divide. And so verse 8, is, as well as legalism, all these things that we do or don't understand naturally. And uh, I just sat there and thought about this, like the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a sought-after, should be a sought-after truth. Um, there's so much division, maybe the most that I can think of right now, dividing the body of Christ into different um, churches, that how their understanding of the Holy Spirit in your life is. And, and most of us, I believe, would probably come to the conclusion that's probably the most important thing for us personally right now is to be filled, to be led, and to be guided by the Holy Spirit and to understand that. So it's, that's why it's under attack. Um, and again, I just, I just ponder. And, and is it really as complicated as people make it sound? And we're about to go through the next few verses and it's all about Jesus in us or us in him or God in him and we'll get to that but there's this thing Christ in us so just sit there and think I meditate you know I want to understand you know what does it mean Christ is in you what does that mean where in you is he right is a little kid Jesus is in my heart well is there a little stick figure running around inside the pumping heart no so um, he has to, obviously, you grow and you realize that my heart is where my decisions are made from. Where you don't, I remember, I think it was Dave Hunt. He says, you don't, you don't think with your brain. So I'm like, I think I do. <laughs> Wait a minute. He goes, you think with your heart. Your brain just calculates stuff. You, you can know that something's wrong. The information's right there, but your heart might say, I'm going to do it anyways. We make decisions and we think with our heart. And uh, he wants to be in those decisions. He's, he wants to come and be part of you. Where, how does he dwell in you? And then I start thinking, you know, you can grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's in you. Just you have life in you, right? So when you die, which, again, I just ponder. This is more of me just venting than anything right now. But your, 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 your soul is connected to your body. And when, you're die, when your body dies, the soul leaves. So somehow you need your body to be, so does the body die when the soul leaves, or does the soul leave because the body died? And I, it, I don't, it obviously doesn't matter. He doesn't tell us. But they're connected somehow, and I think where it does come to matter is that some people think you can lose your salvation. So when the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, where, how does he connect to you? And some people will think that, well, if I do too much, he's going to leave. So that means that you not doing that is what's keeping him in you? Is that what you think? You think you're earning the Holy Spirit? It all comes down to works. Whether we realize it or not, sometimes we fall into that without even understanding what we're doing. How did you get saved? That's how you walk in him, and that's how you're kept. And as I've shared with a bunch of people, um, you know, obviously Moses wrote 
God, God hates divorce. How does that come up right now? Because it's a, it's a doctrine and we need to stick to it. But the best part about that doctrine is we're married to, to God. We want him to hate divorce if he's our husband. And Moses, because he realized that we're human, I'm married, I'm supposed to be Jesus, and I'm not. So because we're frail, he allowed a certificate of divorce because I can have a hard heart. So if you can convince me God can get a hard heart, then I'll believe that he'll divorce me. If it, and God doesn't get a hard heart. So we can. It's not the unforgivable sin. We mess up, and there's grace. But the doctrine is there because the doctrine isn't necessarily just every single passion that we have. The desire for food is because he is the bread of life. The fact that I need air is he's the breath of life. Everything that we do and desires to reach us to a spiritual truth. Marriage isn't about me being happily married. It's about us representing Christ. So when I, if I ever, which I'm not going to, choose to decide to leave my wife, then I'm misrepresenting him because he's not going to leave me. That's why he hates it. It's all about him. We think it's all about us. It's not. It's all about him. It's for his glory. So, so praise God he hates divorce, said the wife. And uh, we're complete in him. The soul, this Holy Spirit, how did he come, right? Galatians, I went there last time. I said I might go there this time. I'm not. But, oh, foolish Galatians, right? Did you, what did you do to get the Spirit? What do you think you have to do to keep him? It's all about him. He came freely. He was given by grace. Just ask. God wants you to be filled with the Spirit. He, it was, he, we, we only know that because he's the one that told us. We don't have to bend his arm and talk him into it. All we have to do is be willing and ask. Walk by faith in that. It's all about what he does. And just to make sure that we understand that, verses 11, 12, and 13. Look at the pronouns. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Just so you know that it's not about what you do. It was done without hands. You can't, we didn't do it. We, there's nothing we could do. It was made without hands. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Oh, hallelujah. How did he do it? Verse 14. It's all about him. Having wiped out and I love it when God draws a picture because I'm slow and I'm simple and I'm like, connect the dots here. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, this is for all the legalists, there was a handwriting of requirements, the law, that was against us, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. God nailed the law to the cross. How did that happen? He nailed Jesus to the cross. He is the word of God. This is, this is the picture. 15, having disarmed, 
because he got put to death, principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. I don't know how excited we are about the law being put to death because people try to revive it all the time. God says, I made a public spectacle. I hung it up to dry so everyone to watch. He was ecstatic over this because of what it did for us. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So there's these things that were to represent Christ. He was there. And again, the shadow is not the substance. It's, it's there. So actually, if it's a shadow, that means there's no light there. It's the only spot where there's not light. He is the light. He was, so if you're looking at his shadow, that means you need to turn around and look at the thing casting the shadow. It all points to, to Jesus. He was there. He, he nailed the law to the cross. He triumphed over the law. And all of those things were only pointing to him anyways. We'll get to that in a minute, too. 18, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. So, cheated. It's, it's actually, King James, I believe, says spoiled, which is the same word that when in the Old Testament, when they would go into a city and they would take over a city, then they would spoil it. They'd steal all of the stuff that they had and take it to their own. And when people are coming and telling you that you need to be careful what you eat, you need to be careful what you drink, and if you want to be spiritual, there's certain festivals that you have to do, either do or not do, they're, they're stealing from you because there's liberty in Christ. Now, there's also the word of God and there's wisdom, right? So, judge you in food. Some... Paul, in other spots, says, you know, it's more spiritual. Some people will come and tell you it's more spiritual to not eat meat. It's a living animal, and it's not good for you, and you should just eat vegetables. And he goes in another spot and says that the less spiritual person thinks you should only eat vegetables. So eating meat's fine. We know that through even, even the dietary law was abolished in the book of Acts, right, Peter? Take up and eat. No, Lord, not, none of these I've done since my youth. He says, what I've called clean, don't you call unclean. And he goes through this, and uh, I just kind of like Pastor Joe when he talks about this, uh, talking about food and vegetables and all that, because he's like, yeah, I'm fat. He, go, he said, uh, it's because I eat too many vegetables, because they're saying, you ought to eat just vegetables. He's like, he goes, I don't know about you. He goes, look at all the animals that only eat vegetables, hippopotamuses, elephants. He goes, who just eats meats? Tigers, lions, they're thin. He's like, vegetables will make you fat. So he goes, don't judge me. But in drink is another one that's important. And, and unfortunately, I've met, I think I've mentioned that in Philippians. Uh, you can see, I don't, I'm not going to judge you over drinking. If you think that you can have a drink, that's between you and the Lord. But the Bible clearly talks its doctrine on drinking. Getting drunk is, is a sin. It's not good. The Apostle Paul says, any, you know, all things are lawful, but not all things are edifying. All things are lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of any. If anything can come in and alter what you do, you shouldn't. We want the Holy Spirit, which is why he says, 
be not drunk with wine, word in its excess, but be being filled with the Holy Spirit. We want to give access to the Holy Spirit in order to rule us. If you think that you have liberty to have a drink, if it's not controlling you and you're not getting drunk, that's between you and the Lord. But it also says there's a law of love. So if somebody else has a drinking problem and your drinking is going to cause them to stumble, then just deny yourself. Don't do it in front of them. There's, there's wisdom there. Let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. Somebody's pushing those. They're trying to steal from you. Let no one cheat you. Um, and again, they were also into false angel worship. We know that that was the thing going on there. <clears throat> kind of strange. Um, the whole angelic world, I, years ago I had started looking into it, and I don't even remember then. So angels, they look like humans, right? Because it says in Hebrews that you might see an angel and you didn't even know it. You're unaware of it. You just thought it was a person. They can come in and out as the Lord allows it for a purpose. Um, they don't have wings. There's seraphim, there's teraphim, there's all this whole angelic thing, the four living creatures, which they sound like they'd be awesome and you'd fall down before them, but they fall down before God, so who knows what we're going to be looking at when we get up there. There's going to be a lot to see. Um, and we'll be in awe. So if one of those things ever showed up, it would be easy to see how you might have this ranking and want to worship them, but anytime somebody goes to worship an angel in heaven, they say, don't worship me, I'm just like you, I'm just a servant, worship him. <clears throat> and he's watching and listening, so I have to say that, but they would anyways, or else they're a fallen angel. Fallen angels want to be worshipped, right? That's what caused Satan to fall, and there's no need to worship angels. They're... Get your eyes on Jesus. If you're praying to someone, be praying to Jesus, or the Father or the Holy Spirit. Pray to God. That's the only one that's worthy. Uh, Jesus himself said he's the only intercessor between God and men. So your, your past relatives, I know this is the choir, but I don't know who's going to be listening on here. Uh, Mary, Mary's last words were, do what he says, pointed to Jesus. She had to offer a sacrifice. She's not worthy to pray to. Um, Jesus is everywhere all at once. He's He's got big shoulders. He cares about everything big and everything little. Nothing's hard for him. That doesn't even make sense that there can be something too hard for him. Don't worship angels. And it says that when you start to do those things, again, this is a, a rational mind thinking humanly. If there's angels, well, then they're obviously awesome. And then why don't we... Not following the scriptures, coming to a conclusion by what you think with your own with your own mind. It says that they're vainly, which means empty, puffed up by their fleshly mind. At the end of verse eighteen, they intrude into those things which he has not seen. God didn't tell them. It's not in the word of God. It's something they thought up on their own. They're vainly puffed up by their own thinking. Bad epistemology. There, I got to say it one more time. And not holding fast, verse nineteen, to the head, Jesus, from whom. All the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, from your 
basic principles of the world from your own rational thinking, things that you can figure out. If you've put to death your flesh, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These are things that people figured out and are trying to teach as doctrine. We read Jesus confronted Pharisees and Sadducees all the time about things like that. Well, that person's unclean. They're walking dead. They're not even saved, so therefore they're unclean. So therefore, if they touch something, that's unclean, because I can come up with a scripture in the Old Testament that supports that. So therefore, if I ever touch it, then I have to wash my hands, because food touches me and goes into me, and they come up with all this crazy stuff because they thought too much rather than let God just teach them. 23, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. Again, if you know that there's a God and you know there's a truth and you know you have to do something and the Holy Spirit's not directing you, then you are stuck coming up on your own or just falling at his feet and begging for help. And the better answer is to fall at his feet and beg for help. Lord, show me. I don't know what I'm doing. I need help. They have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, false humility. And I remember Pastor Jeff hit home when he taught on that. It's a simple truth, but it's true. So we think of prideful people as people that, that think highly of themselves and humble people are think lowly of themselves. And he's like, no, they're both thinking of themselves. The humble person doesn't think of themselves at all. Self, false humility. Oh, woe is me. Oh, I'm such a bad person. And again, when sometimes, oh, God can't forgive me. I'm so bad. What are you actually saying? I'm so bad, God can't forgive me. Are you saying your sin is worse than anyone else? Or are you saying his blood's not good enough to cover your sin? It's heresy actually. It's because you don't want to feel bad about doing what you do and you're not willing to stop it. So instead you're going to have false humility and say, I can't do it even though you can. All you have to do is repent. And neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So trying harder doesn't work. When God tells you to die, you can't try harder. You don't try to die. You can't crucify yourself because once you nail one, nail one hand up, you don't have a hand to nail the other one up. Jesus has to do it. And if you don't believe me, go home and try it. No, don't. <laughs> so you can't get out of the flesh in the flesh. You can't use your flesh to get out of the flesh because that's still in the flesh. You can't become religious. That's all you're doing is you're trying to become a better version of the flesh. And God's like, no, you don't need to become better. You need to be crucified daily with me and let me live through you because he is the fulfillment and the completion of everything and he didn't create us because he wanted us to do good he does want us to do good but that's not the point of creation god wasn't up in heaven the father the son and the holy spirit saying you know what it's just not good enough around here i'm going to make people and when they're good we'll have plenty of good and when we don't do good he's somehow hurt he created us he wants to spend time with us when we sin we're separating ourselves from him. He wants a relationship. He doesn't need us to be these little things going around, not messing up. Trying harder. You can't, have, you can't get out of the flesh in the flesh, and you can't have a relationship with Jesus without Jesus. 
It sounds simple, but we try to do that all the time. That's what religion's trying to do. I'm going to try to be good on my own and go through this whole thing. And you can tell it sometimes when we pray. You can tell it sometimes when I pray. Sometimes when you're praying, you're talking to other people in the room. Prayer is supposed to be you talking to God. We can fellowship at another time. Some people are legitimately just crying out to the Lord, Lord, forgive me, I'm a miserable sinner. And he said, that guy went away forgiven. On that note, what was the conclusion of how we get saved? Isaiah 1. Rob was there this morning. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11 says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? So there were people at a time when God had been warning them and sending prophets to them and trying to draw them back and begging with them as he is right here. Come to me. So if you just stop right there and think, they were, they were offering sacrifices. Isn't that an act of worship to God? Aren't isn't that their duty? Isn't that what they were supposed to do? So here they are. God's telling them they're in sin. Well, the answer for sin is to bring a sacrifice. So if they're in sin, they need to bring a sacrifice. So why is he complaining about them bringing sacrifices? To what purpose? He's like, what's your purpose? Why are you bringing me the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle I do not delight in the blood of bulls. I thought that's how they got cleansed. Or of lambs or goats. Twelve, when you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand? He doesn't say, why did I require it? He goes, who? This is about me. Who's required it? To trample my courts. And here's the answer. Thirteen, bring no more futile sacrifices. It wasn't the problem that they brought a sacrifice, is that it was a futile sacrifice. Futile, vain, or worthless. If they needed to bring a sacrifice, what they needed to do is they needed to bring it by faith in what it represented, not an act of, I'm just being obedient, I'm just doing what I do, I'm going through the motions, I'm becoming religious, I'm not, you're telling us we're in sin, well, I don't want to repent. I'll just bring an animal. I'll kill it. Like God likes killing animals. Well, it's a barbecue. <laughs> it says he loves the smell of it. So do I. That's basically what the priests were as butchers. They would butcher it all up. They would put it on the fire. It would get cooked. They would eat some. The people would eat some. Some of it would be sent up to God, and they were all eating together. It was fellowship over something. But it wasn't just because it was food, and I'm not just bringing it because I feel guilty. I'm bringing it for the wrong reason, he says. Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense, a version of prayer, is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the festivals, and calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meetings. So there was iniquity in their approach to him religiously. He's like, you guys are going through the motion I'm not accepting it because it's not about me. This is all about you. This is about you doing something. This is about you bringing an animal. It's not about what that animal represents. It's not about the promise that I told you. It's not about God. And I get that. If you would flip with me to Hebrews 4. 
Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, talking about the Jews in the wilderness. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So they were told what to do, but it was supposed to be by faith. Abraham believed God, and that was accounted unto him to righteousness. Cain and Abel both brought a sacrifice. One was by faith, one wasn't. One was accepted, one wasn't. The sacrifices are supposed to be representative of something. God told them from the beginning, from the beginning of Genesis, that the seed of the woman would come, and all of these sacrifices represented the Messiah coming. And if you did it by faith in that, there's only one gospel and there's only one way that we're ever going to be saved and that's through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if that sacrifice was about what God was going to do and you were looking forward to it, it was accepted by him. And if you just decided that you were going to commit an act of religion, he's like, no, it's not about what you do. And all through the Old Testament, he never accepted it. It wasn't about their animal sacrifice. It was about what that animal sacrifice is represented and their faith towards that. It's about Jesus Christ. Jesus said every single thing that was written in the book, which only the Old Testament was written at that time, was written of me. It's all about him. Verse 3, for we who have believed do enter that rest, as he said, So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. It was already done. They were supposed to be looking forward to that promise that he had made of him finishing it. For he has spoken in a certain place on the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this place they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, today, after such a long time as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, for if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God, For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. You don't have to become religious. In him it's all fulfilled. We worship him. We love him. We spend time with him. We walk with him. Psalm 32 says that don't be like the horse. We have to be led about with a bit and a bridle, but that he will guide you with his eye. If you're led of the Holy Spirit, you're not going to sin. Sin is missing the mark. The mark was to spend time with him, to have a relationship and fellowship with God. He loves you. He wants to spend time with you. He wants to spend all day with you. He wants his spirit to come in, and you have this relationship through the spirit that now you can know, and you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, that same sealing that Satan was locked up in. You're you're sealed. Enjoy his relationship. If you're walking around constantly worried that you're going to lose your salvation, then you're constantly walking around doubting God's goodness, his faithfulness, and his love for you. Just enjoy him. As Pastor Chuck used to say, love God and do whatever you want. Because if you're loving him, it's going to be fine. And if you're doing the wrong thing, he'll correct you. He's not a taskmaster. Don't, Don't live in such a way that as people are watching your life that they they have a misrepresentation of who God is. Verse 11, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, 
or strive to enter that rest. It's kind of an oxymoron. You, you, don't let anything take you out of what, that rest that's in Christ that God has for you. Don't let people through vain philosophies or religious people come and put some burden on you that God hasn't intended that will take you out of the rest that's in him. Lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience as those in the Old Testament. Verse 12, for the word of God is living. This book that he gave us that can direct us, that the Holy Spirit authored, that the Holy Spirit in you will rightfully divide in your heart, that you will know how to live your life and how to spend time with God, is living and powerful. It's alive and it's powerful. It's not just a word that condemns. It's a word that gives you life. It's not a stop sign or a speed limit sign that says 55. It actually is a sign that tells you the speed limit is 55 and I'm going to empower you the ability to drive it so that you won't speed. Uh, he gives you, it's not just the law, it's, it's the fulfillment of the law in you. It's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So how do I know if this is my flesh talking or if it's a spirit talking? It's piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. The Holy Spirit will tell you what's of him and what's of you. Learn to discern the voice of God in your heart. The division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intent of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I don't know if you guys want to come up. We're going to be taking communion tonight just to finish up the chapter here. Verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we obtain that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You come to the throne boldly, and it's a throne of grace, something that you don't deserve. And uh, we're going to sing a song, and while the song's coming, uh, Brian's going to be passing out the elements, and just hang on to it until the song, and we'll take it together. It tells us in Hebrews 10, verse 1, For the law having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then they would not have, for then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshiper once purified would have no more consciousness of sins, but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. Verse 10, By that will 
we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Everything that we needed to do have done for us. He did it, and it's happened once, and it's happened for all, and it's happened forever. And uh, the Bible tells us that that's the thing that he wants us to remember with these tokens, that we look and remember what he did on the cross for us. He fulfilled the law, and he's in us. So as we partake of the body, remember Jesus on the cross, all the pictures of the Old Testament, everything that this pointed to, the thing that God wants us to remember about this is that it's finished. And we just thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross. Let's take him. And we know that the letter, Jesus is the word of God. The word of God was nailed to the cross. And in so doing, his blood came down. And we know that the, the law was blotted out against us. This blood cleansed us and it removed those. And we just think of the sinless Christ and completing that on our behalf as we take this, we think of his life being spilt out so that we might live. Thank you, Jesus. Let's partake. Just going on to finish. Uh, Hebrews 10, verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. We in the, are in the process of being sanctified, but we've already been perfected in his sight. Justification's taken place. 15, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. It's not about what they think, it's about what I will put in them. Then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. Then he adds, um, I will remember no more. 18, now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God. Here's the exhortation. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Jesus' work accomplished it. We can have full assurance of faith if we're in him. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much more as you see the day approaching. And Father, we just thank you that what Jesus did is enough, and we know that because you told us. We couldn't come up with that on our own. Lord, we would never think of anything so good to be true. 
but you've promised it, and he who said it is faithful, and you've made a way, and we believe you. Help us to not fall back. Help us to not faint. Help us to not doubt that you are as good as you tell us that you are. Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit that we can believe these things, walk in them, spend today drawing close to you throughout the day, just walking in your presence and enjoying you. Fill us with joy. Fill us with holiness and fill us um, with anticipation of your soon return that we might long to see you. Lord, we want to get out of here, but Lord, more so we want to see you face to face. And, uh, and we do want to get out of here, Lord, so please come quickly. And uh, thank you for being a good God. In Jesus' name, amen.